The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. This is Squawk Pod from CNBC, from the team behind TV's Squawk Box, a daily roundup of the biggest news and names in business and politics. First, on today's pod, the buzz on Wall Street. How come when regulators are telling you that you're unsafe and you're not getting, you're barely getting passing grades, like a gentleman C for some of these things, how come you don't have to notify your shareholders? Flaws in our banking system. Jamie Dimon scheduled for a deposition and woolly mammoth meatballs. I had a couple of questions about that. Is it gamey or does it taste like chicken? Then a page out of our health and science reporter's notebook, Meg Terrell. We see shortages of ADHD drugs, for example. We see shortages of these new drugs like Ozempic and Wagovi. Antibiotics are among the drugs most in shortage. A critical drug shortage. Doctors and patients trying to make do. What's gone wrong in our supply chain? Part of that is just a crumbling infrastructure. Part of that is the inability to really model out what the supply and demand is going to be. The Americans struggling. It's honestly bizarre. It's so scary to me. It's a conversation you'll hear only on this podcast. This is not a COVID-centric or a COVID-caused problem. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. This episode of Squawk Pod begins right now. What kind of fun is waiting for you at King's Island? The holy cow, we're way too high and here comes the drop kind of fun. The make a splash all summer kind of fun. The I can't believe I ate that whole funnel cake. Let's get another kind of fun. But most importantly, at King's Island, you'll find for the fun of it kind of fun. Don't wait to start your fun this season. King's Island is now open weekends. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod. Up and Becky, here. Good morning. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. We're live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick along with Joe Kernan. Andrew is off this week. But here we go. A lot of interesting scuttlebutt, again, about Silicon Valley Bank. Even though it wasn't because of the, the, the amendments to Dodd-Frank in 2018 that relaxed some of the, the rules on the regionals, it still would have... If you looked at it the way that it presented itself, it still would have been within the guidelines. Of yeah. That well, look, there's a couple. It it, it grew its deposit base. It doubled I right. think, over the last year or two since the pandemic started. Um, it so tripled since 2019 or something. I mean, it it, it, it it grew enormously. It was over 200 billion. A lot of free money sloshing around, especially right. out in technology land. And and something like 97 to 98 percent of its deposits were uninsured. So yeah. these were clients that had a lot of money there. 
And the clients yank that money very quickly. In fact, we're learning more about that run on Silicon Valley Bank's deposits. This comes from testimony yesterday. On March 9th, panic customers withdrew $42 billion in a single day from the bank. But at a Senate hearing yesterday, the Fed Vice Chair for Supervision, Michael Barr, testified that $42 billion was nothing compared to what, have gone, what would have gone out the next day. A total of $100 billion uh, was scheduled to go out the door that day. The bank did not have enough collateral to meet that. Uh, and therefore, they were not able to actually meet their obligations uh, to pay their depositors over the course of that day, and, and they were shut down. That combined withdrawal figure of $142 billion in two days represents 81% of the bank's $175 billion in deposit as of the end of last year. Regulators shuttered SVB on March 10th because clearly the bank couldn't meet those deposit demands or withdrawal demands. Barr will be one of the witnesses testifying before a House committee today on the failure of SVB and Signature Bank. I think the thing I thought when I heard this was, oh my gosh, we knew it was bad. We didn't know it was that bad or how yeah. quick things were moving. Wall Street Journal excoriates Michael Barr in, in the editorial today just for pointing the fingers everywhere else except at, at Fed supervision. Not just Fed supervision, but so you have zero interest rates for 13 years or 10 years. So there's a, you know, you're going to fund a lot of stuff that probably shouldn't be funded because there's, there's no cost to capital. And you're out in Silicon Valley where all these guys, all these startups, the valuation at zero for all these exciting new technologies and tech companies, they, made, they enriched all these, these people. Yeah. And, and they kept their money. It was the thing to do. Well, so it was, all the it was startups, the thing they required you to do. If you're going to get the loans get from loan, us, you're going to keep all so, of your money here so and they all sell of your stock other accounts. With the IPO. However, yeah. however, they get out of the, these great investments, these startups that they created, and they put it all in Silicon Valley Bank. And none of them have only $250,000. Yeah. They all got millions and millions of dollars. So that should have been, you know, that should have raised some eyebrows when the deposits were in that fit. And then... Silicon Valley, you know, the, the risk managers there, God, look at all this money. What do we do? What do we do? Put it in treasuries. Long term. Put it in long term, long -term treasuries. treasuries. We need yield so that it looks okay, yeah. but we want something that's, you know, fortress balance sheet safe. So they put it in long treasuries. And Part of the, the issue you can go back and say, okay, because of Dodd-Frank and then the changing of the rules afterwards, which Barney Frank was among the people kind of lobbying for it to be lowered because he was on Signature Bank. Right. Um, part of the concern with all of that was that, okay, that, that bank wasn't stress tested for several years, but it wouldn't have mattered because the stress tests were testing for dropping interest rates, it not was, rising interest rates. So yeah. they weren't even looking at the right thing. Like three quarters of, of a percent on, on the 10 year. And the Fed was you know, telling everyone not to worry because inflation is transitory. So the, the other thing is the supervised, you know, the San Francisco Fed, and they, the point is made that they did flag a lot of things, but didn't tell anyone they had to do anything. They didn't kick it up uh, to, to hire supervisors at the Fed. They didn't, they didn't say, this you must do. They just alerted them, and the bank didn't do anything Here's about what it. I don't understand. How come you don't, like, if, if, if the SEC sends you a Wells notice, you have to identify, you have to tell your investors because it could be material. Yeah. How come when regulators are telling you that you're unsafe and you're not getting, you're barely getting passing grades, like a yeah. gentleman's C for some of these things, how come you don't have to notify your shareholders well, of that? How did Why Peter Thiel and others sniff it out finally? They, they must have known that 80% of the assets were in long-term treasuries. If you listened to Barry Sternlich, he said in the weekend, he and two of his colleagues sat down and just went through six of the banks and realized all of them Head have the similar duration. situations like that with the duration risk. So I, 
I don't know, if you're looking closely, I guess it's there. The one thing I will say is all of these politicians who say that they're not interested in bailing anybody out and that's, uh, you know, things are bad, We've heard from people who, who we both know who follow things closely who have a lot of concerns about this. I didn't realize until the testimony yesterday about the idea of $142 billion walking out the door in, in 48 hours, demands for those kind of deposits. If you look at that, I saw another report that indicated something like 168 banks or something would be in similar positions of problems. 50% yeah. of the liquidity went out. Yeah. You look at those things and uh, this is bad. It, it was systemic. You don't want to be in a position where you're looking at the Great Recession or where or Great Depression, where there's something like 40% unemployment or thing that rolls through the country. And I don't know that any of the politicians have looked into the seriousness of that. You don't want to scare people, but you also want to make sure you're understanding the severity of well, the situation and the need for ring fencing things. And what would they, in a perfect world, when you when you when you're hit with back-to-back -back crises like the Fed was hit with, with 2008 and then and the, the pandemic, COVID, right. it's almost a perfect storm that keeps you at zero, keeps inflation low, long. right? And uh, but there was a good reason for it. And every time they tried to normalize interest rates, something else, it's like uh, this. I picked a bad day. Wish they would have started doing it a rates. year or two earlier. But that maybe a year, but you did have two pretty unprecedented things. Source tells us, CNBC, that this is new. Uh, uh, J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon will be deposed over his bank's links to disgrace former financier Jeffrey Epstein. The source said that Dimon agreed to be interviewed under oath at an undetermined day in the future for two civil lawsuits tied to Epstein. And the suits accused J.P. Morgan of ignoring red flags about Epstein uh, and profiting from dealings uh, with him. But earlier this month, J.P. Morgan filed a lawsuit against a former investment banking chief, Jess Staley, alleging that he was to blame for any legal fallout uh, for the bank's dealings with Epstein. I don't know what the questions would be for Jamie. I, I can imagine that I love Jamie, and he gets a little prickly at times. I like, uh, during the deposition, I, I hope he can keep his cool, because I, I think I'd be a little bit insulted if I were him, because it, it, there's almost sort of a, I don't know, do you get some of it rub off on Jamie because Jess Staley you know, like Snow White or whatever, those sick, it has nothing to do with Jamie Dimon, does it? What does he, no, what does I, he I know? The questions were about whether he should have been overseeing it or not. It's, right. Uh, you know, but, but yes. Um, you know what, when you're the CEO? Everything's, it, you the, just, the, buck, you, the buck stops yeah. here is the, the problem with Get it over with and, and move but, on. I'm but sure I think J.P. Morgan has been pretty upfront right. in, in cooperating with this. They are also suing Jess Staley exactly. as right. part of all of this, too. Sort of to, and their lawyers have been very vociferous in saying that Jamie didn't know anything about this. Right. We will continue to see. Right. Now to the rising cost of college, especially at the highest level. A new Bloomberg report says that the annual price to attend an Ivy League school is approaching $90,000. The full cost already topped $320,000 for four years. At Yale, that cost is up 4% from last year. At Dartmouth and Brown, the cost is up by 5%. Maybe we should point out that that's actually below the cost of inflation for the first time in a very long time. The burden is eased by financial aid. At most institutions, at least 50% of students receive some sort of assistance. Better get a good job. After all that, you would think. Um, and yet, the arts are still a lot of job. I mean, there's a lot of uh, majors that probably aren't going to pay that 20, 320000 back anytime soon. No. So do you not do that then? 
A lot of it. Probably. How, what's financial aid? Where do you get that? It depends. It depends on the get... school. I mean, there are programs set up that are national ones, but then a lot of these endowments also kick in for Athletics, I guess. Athletics, you can do. Well, not at Ivy League. Smarts. Not at Ivy League no. school. No. No, that's not true. Princeton did pretty well this year. In the do, the, do the Ivies give you? They don't give you the same sort of money for. I don't know. I remember. <laughs> remember those those two sisters oh. that were rowers. <laughs> <They'd>, <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> They've never been in a boat. And, you know, nothing bad can ever happen again, probably. I think we're out of the woods the rest of this. Uh, <laughs> what the U.S. can do to prepare for a war with China. Wall Street Journal. The military's problem isn't technological. It's a strategy designed for only low-intensity conflict. When this baby, when we, if we go to war with China, I don't know, Seth Cropsey, he's a... Uh, Founder and president of the Yorktown Institute, served as a naval officer and as a deputy undersecretary of the Navy. But, you know, I was just looking for some good news to bring viewers today. And uh, not only are we not prepared for the war, but we're talking about a potential future war with a superpower with a billion and a half If this is people. too much to consider, the other story on the front of the Wall Street Journal is about a giant meatball made from DNA of a woolly mammoth. They use the DNA to make the, to actually make the tissue. And we're bringing tissue. back the woolly mammoth and we're going to eat them. I mean, I wonder, I, I had a couple of questions about that. Is it gamey or does it taste <laughs> tastes like, like chicken? chicken? Tastes like chicken. <laughs> I think it's no, probably, I, it, probably tastes more, it, it probably tastes more like beef. I mean, I've had everything. If you go, if you go out west, you can have you everything. Over into, I mean, they eat everything. Elk, uh, oh. any, anything, yeah, game, right. any type of game. I've had it. Over in Switzerland, they serve horse at that one restaurant. Mac. Did you yeah, order yeah. it, Mac? I think he did. He did. <laughs> he neighs every once in a while now when, <laughs> when we're going to break. Cheese will be next. Up next on Squawk Pod, drug shortages have been a problem actually for decades. But after the pandemic, people really started to recognize how big the problem was. CNBC's senior health and science reporter Meg Terrell investigates the mass drug shortage in the United States and what can be done to fix it. A conversation exclusive to this podcast, plus insight from experts in the field. When we went into the pandemic, we didn't have a really good resilient supply chain to start with. We'll be right back. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to Squawk Pod. And we're going to do something a little different, bring you inside the notebook of one of our reporters. Meg Terrell is CNBC's senior health and science correspondent. She has covered the ups and downs of the COVID-19 pandemic, the response of America's largest pharmaceutical companies, and the healthcare of Americans. Meg, so good to see you. Thank you, you so much. My pleasure. I caught up with Meg about a troubling headline she's been looking into, the shortage of prescription drugs, dozens of them hard to find at pharmacies across the country, no matter what an individual's need may be. This is the worst shortage in decades, and it's something of a perfect storm, a race to the bottom in terms of pricing, market failures, 
and a supply chain still experiencing the effects of a global pandemic. Here's Meg. Drug shortages have been a problem actually for decades. Um, But after the pandemic, people really started to recognize how big the problem was in a major way. It sort of brought it to everybody's consciousness. Things like antibiotics. I mean, there was a period during the pandemic when we all realized how much of the active pharmaceutical ingredients that go into these really crucial drugs like antibiotics actually come from places like China and India. And these were places like everywhere in the world that were getting hit really hard by COVID. And so when you have a disruption like that, that causes huge ripples through the entire supply chain. And we started to see shortages of crucial medicines. They were also in very high demand because of COVID, of course. But this is not a COVID-centric or a COVID-caused problem. Part of that is just a crumbling infrastructure. Mm. Uh, Part of that is uh, the inability to really model out what the supply and demand is going to be. And some of that does relate back to the pandemic because people are out and about more now than they've been in the last three years. And so we're getting sick again. We need these kinds of drugs again. And then some of them are, are totally unrelated to that. You know, we see shortages of ADHD drugs, for example, that's not caused by these generic issues. We see shortages of these new drugs like Ozempic and Wagovi, these drugs people are so excited about for diabetes and obesity. Um, And that's not caused by these problems. Where's the worst of the problem? Antibiotics are among the drugs in most in shortage. Um, They're not the only class of drugs that is seeing that problem, but um, they're all, many of them are very, very old medicines and they're very inexpensive medicines. We talked with one expert, Aaron Fox at um, University of Utah Health, who is considered, you know, one of the foremost experts on drug shortages. When we went into the pandemic, we didn't have a really good resilient supply chain to start with. Um, we had a lot of shortages then due to spikes in demand. Um, we were able to, to work through those. A lot of companies were able to ramp up supplies of, of those products that we critically needed. But at the same time, uh, they deprioritized some other really basic products. Branded products have a lot of incentives to have resiliency and redundancy built into their manufacturing supply chains. So we rarely see a shortage of a branded product, um, in part because, you know, the financial incentives are there um, to to not have a shortage. Like we have never had a shortage of Humira. We've never had a shortage of Keytruda. These are medicines that bring in tens of billions of dollars a year for Merck and for AbbVie. And of course, there are obvious incentives for the companies to make sure there are not disruptions in the manufacturing of those medicines. For these drugs that cost a dollar or, or less, and you know they're generic drug makers making them, there aren't those kinds of incentives to keep the manufacturing running totally smoothly. What you often see in the United States is that when a company loses market exclusivity on a branded medicine and the generics can flow in, the price collapses. And that's how the system is designed. And it sounds great, right? Like you you get the monopoly on the drug for a certain period of time. You get to make billions of dollars. And there are lots of arguments over how the pharmaceutical industry extends those timelines (laughs) and whether or not they should be allowed to do that. But once they face generic competition, the price can collapse by like 90%. But then you have this kind of race to the bottom of the generic drugs. And that creates this kind of market failure where sometimes it's not a great business to be in. You spoke to a mother of a young child who was facing uh, an amoxicillin shortage. Um, Tell me about her and tell me what she told you about her experience. All right, well, we are recording, so whenever you wanna. Yeah, so Eleanor Feldman is a young mom in New Jersey. Um, She's got three kids. Her youngest is about 14 months old. So my two school-age kids 
uh, bring home all the viruses and my baby gets to experience them all. Her baby is on her third ear infection uh, mm-hmm. in this short period of time. And Eleanor actually happens to be a doctor herself, and she knew that there was a shortage of amoxicillin. After prescribing amoxicillin for my patients and having people telling me it's been really difficult for them to get a hold of it, uh, I had a feeling it was going to be hard for me. First time it turned out okay. The second time she couldn't find it and she had to go to sort of the next step antibiotic, which is called Augmentin. And experts tell us that is not something you want to have to use. It's sort of something you keep in reserve if amoxicillin stops working. Of course, in the back of my mind, I'm like, well, this is not what was prescribed in the first place. She's so little. She wasn't even a year old at the time. And the whole thing with antibiotics is, you know, they can start to lose their efficacy right. and you want to make sure that you don't you know, have resistance and whatnot. So you don't move to the sort of bigger guns unless you really need to. And then the third time she had a delay trying to find amoxicillin. And, you know, this is a mom of multiple kids who is worried about her sick baby, who then is trying to go through all of these hoops of finding this medicine. And it's just way more than you want to need to deal with. I ended up getting a phone call from the pharmacy Um, Oh, sorry, we don't have it. We're sending it to a different pharmacy. Okay, that pharmacy didn't have it. I can't imagine how stressful that must be to go from pharmacy to pharmacy and strike out each time. And, you know, speaking from personal experience, that is a terrible situation to be in. Mm -hmm. Antibiotics are these miraculous drugs. I mean, kids start to feel better so quickly once you give it to them, but you're waiting days to be able to actually treat them. And it's such a simple thing. It's just heartbreaking and frustrating. It's honestly bizarre. It's so scary to me. It's really a societal benefit to fix these problems, but the entities that have to fix the problem are the industry. And so, you know, talking with a lot of experts in this space, they say that is sort of a situation that's perfect for government intervention. The government can provide incentives for companies to make these medicines and to ensure the continuity of their manufacturing. Um, Perhaps we need a situation like that. I've even heard people compare it to perhaps this needs to be like a utility because Mm. these are sort of public good products and they don't make huge amounts of money. You know, I think I talked with Eric Tishi from the Mayo Clinic who chairs the End Drug Shortages Alliance. And he was like, if this was a situation with water, nobody would accept it. There is a high cost to cheap drugs. And so it's great when they're plentiful and available and very low cost. Um, In a competitive market, sometimes the profit margins can be very thin and it could lead manufacturers to exit the market. If something happens with that limited number of manufacturers, that can be um, a, a way that we end up with shortages. And then there's not a lot of incentives for manufacturers to jump in. And David Maris, who's an analyst, a financial analyst, who's covered this industry for a long time, was like, we don't need to stand for this as consumers. It's incredibly, incredibly complicated. And once you start tinkering with it, people are going to say, well, you're tinkering with capitalism. You're tinkering with free market. Sometimes you do need to tinker tinker with things um, to, to get it right if you care about consumers. If you only care about corporate profits and you don't care about supply, then then don't do anything. I mean, that's where where we're left. For as long as Americans want cheap drugs, this is what the problem's gonna be. Because when you push for cheap drugs, you push manufacturing to cheap manufacturing places. So in China or in India, where you can get an employee for a 10th or a 20th of the price in the United States, and regulation is so much lower on environmental areas and other things, 
well, it makes sense to manufacture there if you need a low-cost manufacturer. What can be done? What is a possible solution? Yeah, in addition to the the consumer experience and just sort of the public good nature of things mm. like antibiotics, it's also a national security question. Um, mm. You know, thinking about China in particular, if they are the sole controller of an active pharmaceutical ingredient, so maybe they don't make the entire drug, but they make the key ingredient that goes into the drug. If we're having problems with China, or they're having a situation where they need the medicine themselves, they may not export it. And so there are questions about whether we should make sure that no one country has control over an active pharmaceutical ingredient. Um, also just making sure that we can do some manufacturing here in the United States. I think some people think that is a major solution. Others have said that won't do at all because a lot of the shortages we see are from U.S. plants that won't fix the complete problem. What can be better? Well, I'm not hearing about any sort of short-term fixes for the amoxicillin Mm. shortage, unfortunately. Um, That is something that hopefully will resolve with time. Mm -hmm. But longer term, experts say we are at a pivotal moment to try to sort of seize the attention that this issue has finally received after two decades um, because of the pandemic to do something about it. Um, Some of the solutions that have been talked about, the main thing you'll hear from experts is that we just need more transparency. We need to know where drugs are made, all the components of drugs, where do they come from? How do the supply chains work? We need more transparency into the quality of the manufacturing of these companies. This shouldn't be a problem, right? Like we have the supposedly the the best healthcare system in the world in the United States. We spend so much money on our healthcare. Like why is this happening? Person after person who I speak with, from doctors to experts on the supply chain, they're just baffled by how much money we spend on our healthcare and the fact that we face all these shortages. Meg, thank you so much for walking us through the problem here. It's really a pleasure to have you. Thank you. My pleasure. Meg's series Failure to Fill is airing all this week on television on CNBC with reporting on CNBC.com as well. And you can check out a weekly biotech podcast that Meg does with Stat News. It's called The Read Out Loud and is available wherever you like to listen. Thanks to Meg Terrell and to producer Leanne Miller for their work on this episode. And thanks to you for listening. This podcast is produced by me, Katie Kramer, Cameron Costa, Caroline Rahotis, and Zach Felici. John Lesration is our editor. And we aim to bring you the very best of Squawk Box, the headlines, the guests, the jokes, with anchors Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Plus, a little extra, like a deeper dive into the great work our reporters are doing, or the context that you need to help you make sense of the biggest news in business. That's all for Squawk Pod. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.